Welcome to Grit, Guts, and Determination, the Leadville Race Series podcast. I'm your host, Cole Clover, son of race founder, Ken Clover. And I'm going to take you on a journey of rich storytelling through our now 40-year rich history. And I invite you to sit back and listen to these eccentric stories. But don't forget to take a few notes along the way because these eccentric stories are going to have tricks and tips to get you to that line come summer. So sit back, enjoy, and then we'll see you at home. We'll see you in Leadville. Leadville family, today's guest has too many achievements to name, but the biggest one that stands out to me is the godfather of endurance cycling. Today, I have none other than our very first mountain bike champion, John Stamstead. And boy, does he have a good story to tell and is making his return to endurance cycling on that bike. So tune in and take notes. This is one you don't want to miss. We have a saying in Leadville, you don't find Leadville, Leadville finds you. Well, John, when did Leadville find you? Uh, well, for personally, 1994 um, for the bike, but of course I'd heard about it from the run you know, before that. Uh, I was a uh, passionate runner in high school, so that was kind of my world super early on. And then I uh, you know, did the biking thing, and you know, as soon as I heard that there was a uh, mountain bike version, like, it wasn't an option not to do it. I was well, super excited. I get, and I guess I didn't know that you had that running background. And uh, before we big, dig too far into Leadville and other topics, I want to level set with our audience to know how special of a guest you are. Uh, I view you as the godfather of endurance cycling, as do numerous other people. You have done numerous endurance achievements, both on your feet and on your wheels. And I feel that's very worthy of our airtime and will greatly benefit our Leadville family. You also have done FTKs from the early 90s when social media and FTKs weren't even a thing yet. So um, we definitely need to give some airtime to that. And let's dig in. I know you came from the road world, but uh, am I right in understanding that in 1985, you entered and rode a 547-mile nonstop race across Missouri from St. Louis to Kansas City and back? Yes. So I had um, I'd started biking by uh, doing touring. I rode from Wisconsin to Colorado in, or maybe it was summer of 83 or 84. Okay. And I just found that I loved being on my bike all day. Like that just really uh, appealed to me. And so I asked a friend like, Hey, what's the, what's the hardest, you know, kind of race endurance ride around. And I thought it would be like a race across America qualifier. Uh Um, and he said, no, this race across Missouri, you know, Kansas city and back, it's super hilly. It's, you know, really difficult. So I, I decided to do that and I did well, I mean, better than I expected. And then, excuse me, so um, I decided to apply myself a bit in this, you know, new, you know, endurance biking um, endeavor. Back then it was, you know, Race Across America was the 
you know, the, the big event. Well, and that was all road too, right? Yes. So there wasn't any endurance mountain biking uh, that I knew of. I had done, I did Shawamagon, Shawamagon. Um, yeah. I grew up in Wisconsin, so that was my first mountain bike race in maybe 1984. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're the they're as old as our entire event series with the run, and I didn't learn about that until I moved to Minnesota the last 10 years. Yeah, so I kind of, I, I sort of started mountain biking, but then, you know, in the, you know, long distance, um, you know, event category, it was all road. So I did 24-hour you know, road rides, you know, point to point. Um, it was a lot of fun, but although, you know, you do get tired of riding or doing laps <laughs> around a cornfield after a while. It's not very exciting. Well, for sure. And Schwamigan here, it's a, a 40 mile mountain bike race. So in 1991, you did make the switch. You switched from the road bike to the mountain bike and took on a challenge, uh, out here in Colorado called Montezuma's Revenge one and return for the win in 1996. Uh, do you want to talk about those experiences and did you take it on the, any other years than that? Um, I'm not sure I did. It, I did it at least twice. I'm not, I'm not positive though. Um, yeah. And it's funny when you, you know, the difference in your mentality when you do something and then kind of looking back on it, you know, Kind of thirty years <laughs> yes. ago, like it is. So I would say, with with the hindsight of you know all the years and doing all the events and even the state that the sport is in now, which is obviously a different planet. For sure, Montezuma's Montezuma's Revenge was still probably you know the, the hardest and you know in some ways most extreme twenty four hour you know type race that there was. And I think like, what was I thinking? Like going out there and doing that for my first one? Like that's, that's crazy. Well, yeah, Uh, it was these five finger loops and one of them you're, you're packing your bike on your up Gray's peak on your back. And yeah. And I was living in, you know, Cincinnati, Ohio, like, you know, (laughs) (laughs) that was my training. All I did was ride a road bike, you know, to, to train for that. And, and so the difference between that and then hiking up up and over graves is couldn't be more stark. But I loved it. You know, I just went out there a few weeks beforehand, uh-huh. uh, learned the loops because that's the other thing with that race is you can't just show up the day before the race and you know think you're going to follow a map and you know complete the course. Like you kind of <laughs> have to know it pretty well. Right. Right. Um. So yeah, I loved I loved that race. It was you know doesn't you know probably get the credit it deserves as being a pioneering you know event because the whole twenty four hour racing thing hadn't really you know come around yet and you know that was a a pioneering event for sure. Uh, absolutely, I think that's one of those ones that was just so extreme that that's why it doesn't get that credit um, for sure. Now in, in and then so in 1992, you transitioned back onto the road bike, huh? And, and went across the pond and did something big uh, 
in Australia. Do you want to talk about that achievement? Yeah. So the plan in 1992 was to do the race across America. That was what I'd been training for the you know the previous couple of years. And I did a qualifier, you know, won the qualifier. But then I just couldn't get the financing. Like you know, doing race across America is a pretty big project. You know, you yeah. get a crew and a motorhome. You you know, there's a lot going on with it, and it was just kind of daunting. And um, but then you know, like these things, you know, good fortune, you know, happens. You know, I've been very lucky in having you know good fortune in you know certain you know parts of my life, and I was sponsored by Bridgestone Bicycles. Oh yeah, and they they um, had a new bike called the X01, which was kind of a kind of ahead of its time. It was you know a hybrid. Well, we, today we would call it a gravel bike, right? And at that time, like that wasn't a thing. Like it either had to be a mountain bike or a road bike. There was no in between. So the uh, um, the the bike got terrible reviews because people just didn't understand it, and I was riding one and loved it. And so Grant Peterson, um, who was, you know, running Bridgestone then said, Hey John, is there any cool events that you want to do on this bike? So we can kind of showcase what it's capable of. I said, yeah, there's this, you know, off-road, um, race across Australia that would be ideal. It was a dirt road race across Australia. Uh, so I went and did that. And then that, you know, after having done that, that was so much it was a whole different level higher than, you know, what race across America would be, um, at least in, in my mind. Um, and so that's where I was like, Oh, mountain biking is where it's at. Like, this is, this is what I want to do with, you know, the next X number of years of my, uh, life. So that was kind of a, uh, a life changing experience for sure. I, I can only imagine. Was it really wild? Uh, did you have to avoid a lot of animals or crazy things like that, or just the exposure? So it was. It started as a um, a stage race. So it was fourteen hours a day. People from all over the world, you know, came to do it. Um, so fourteen-ish hours a day, uh, brutally washboarded dirt roads and, and deep sand. So those were the two, like it's, you know, pretty pan flat, Uh but the sand was brutal and the washboards, like people were breaking bikes, you know, left and right. Um, so those were the main obstacles. And then, you know, it's kind of a funny story. I knew before the race started that like you don't just ride your bike across Australia (laughs) the first few expeditions of cars like the you know trying to be the first to drive across australia like they all died <laughs> right so you're just you know it's even which you know in 1992 i thought that was you know the modern world but you would see signs that said no services for a thousand kilometers <laughs> there was no there's no gas station um so it was you know an odd mix of being a supported race but it was also super out there right Right, um, if something went wrong, you were <laughs> probably not walking back home. Yeah, yeah, there was no, there were no options. Um, but I was, so I was in the lead. I was in first place every day for the first 14 days of the race. And then we got to Alice Springs. And then, you know, it's kind of a long convoluted story, but 
I got kicked out of the race by the race director for alleged defamation of character of him. <laughs> the guy was a little bit, a little bit loony. Like I had a yeah. ton of respect for him because he was a bit of an explorer too. I think when uh, when Evil Knievel jumped a motorcycle over twenty three double decker buses, uh huh. This guy Hans took a double decker bus and jumped it over that many. Um, Motorcycles. <laughs> That's and a he, bit eccentric. He circum- circumnavigated Australia in a in a rowboat. Oh my god! <laughs> um, but yeah, it was kind of a crazy thing. So I got kicked out, and then at that point, there was only a handful of people left in the race, and all but two quit in protest because you can't kick the leader of a race out of a race. It doesn't make much sense. It's a bit um, difficult. What's that? It's a bit difficult. <laughs> yeah, and this this was making national news over in Australia. Like we were on the front page of you know the newspaper, and it was a you know a big thing with this whole you know kind of uh, the race falling apart. But so, I, not only was I kicked out of the race, but I was left stranded in Alice Springs. Like my stuff was removed from the caravan, and I was left there to you know fend for myself. Oh no. Um, but the guy in second place, Henry Kingman, he dropped out also because it was kind of a travesty. And I called my sponsor, you know, Bridgestone. I said, Hey, Grant, you know, know, race was going well. Uh, I got kicked out. And if you can wire me a thousand dollars, I've got these two gals who will crew for us. And Henry and I will ride Ram style the rest of the way across the continent, the second half. Okay. And Grant says, yeah, John, just make it a good story. So we, and that's what we did. We bought this, bought a used Toyota van. And again, like preparing to drive, we had to get a 55 gallon drum of gasoline and then <laughs> quarts of oil. Um, and we rode, you know, as nonstop as we could, like 23, 20, you know, hours a day, the rest of the way. Oh God, that sounds miserable. Yeah, it was glorious in its misery. <laughs> well, Absolutely glorious. You are a type A fun kind of guy. Well, so here are all these like obscure, I want to say little races, but I use air quotes because they're very long, just very few people. Having that experience behind you, um, here we are in 1994, and this is when you come into my world. What was your experience in Leadville like that first year I remember I was commissioned by Rodney Jacobs of Free Will and Films to help film you guys um, part you guys doing the inaugural bike race and part the uh, run and they were doing all kinds of hotel interviews with you guys at the Delaware Hotel and stuff what was that like that experience leading up to the actual race the Leadville Trail 100 in 1994 it was really fun. Um, I remember being very excited about it. Um, I had trained a lot. I was a little bit, I was dealing with an injury. Um, I had crashed at the 24 hours of, uh, canane and compressed vertebrae in my neck. Um, so like that summer from June until whenever Leadville was, I couldn't ride longer than five hours. And then <laughs> after every ride, I had to go to the chiropractor before I could ride again. Oh, God. 
So I was a little bit concerned about my form. Uh-huh. Like, you know, I'd been super fit leading up to that. So I just thought if I could maintain it, but I couldn't do any long rides. Um, uh, so that you have that nervous, you know, trepidation, you know, uh, that everyone has, you know, yeah. going into a race. But that was I'm trying to think like what, you know, most of the races that I had done, you know, the long distance ones get like 50 people. Um, right. you know, and that's kind of a big race. So Leadville was, what was it? 400 then? Well, I think we were like 148, the first event and then like 400 when you came back. Oh, okay. But um, I so mean, like we race, had, you know, it, then like that's the biggest field, um, that you would, you would see in a, you know, in that type of, of event. And then the hundred mile was kind of a new category also, or, you know, new ish. Um, so I'd done, I don't know, I'd maybe done a couple of hundred milers. Wilderness 101 in Pennsylvania was one, but, you know, this was kind of a new, um, category that I thought was a great distance. You know, it's a, it's kind of the marathon, right? you know, for runners, it's, you know, a distance that like you can do it if you train for it, but you certainly can't just go out there and do it unprepared. And it's what I thought was great about it was it's an achievement just to finish it. Like finishing, you know, Leadville is a cool thing, you know, getting, you know, if you can get the belt buckle, right. Um, you know, that's kind of another level. And I, I thought that was, uh, like only one person, you know, can win like, you know, second through, you know, a few hundred places, they need to get something out of the event also. And I thought that was the real draw of these endurance, events like just finishing them you know is really a a pretty good notch like that's you can you know it's kind of you can brag about it or even to yourself like i accomplished something right right well now and then what did what were your thoughts about the field at the time i mean i remember you showed up with your buddy will gagan and he was a, a norba pro and and some of your other competition that day was Kyle Ricci, who was a, you know, a machinist. And then you had uh, some investment bankers from Aspen. Did you know any of those guys or uh, did you of them? Like Mike Volk uh, was a, you know, Norba pro too. I think he was one of the steamboat guys. Yeah. Um, and then it wasn't, I was surprised there weren't more, um, you know, other Norba pros. Because uh, it just seemed like this was going to be a, a marquee event, right. um, uh, like and like I said, like I wouldn't have missed it for anything. I was just surprised more people kind of didn't think the same way. Well, I do feel like you were quite advanced on your mileage to where they might have been around the times, and and so, but I I kind of feel the same way, and I don't have that answer either. Um, but you know. Also, let's talk about the gear at the time. At this time, you were you had a deal with Richie, if I'm not wrong, and you were on a rigid Richie with like their soft ride version of a stem. Yeah. How did that work for you? Did you do you miss that equipment? Was it a lot more difficult to manage that than today's equipment? I, I do not miss, I do not have that much nostalgia for <laughs> 90s mountain bikes at all. Um, 
yeah, that's one thing. Like that first, I had two flat tires um, uh-huh. that first year, and that's you know, like with tubeless tires now, like it doesn't eliminate flats, but it almost eliminates them. Um, you know, you certainly don't have to worry about them very much. Um, the Allsop stems were really good on you know washboarded gravel roads, uh-huh. but in anything technical, they um, they get a lot of play in the bushings. Uh-huh. And so they might start out, you know, really stiff uh, at the beginning of the ride, but then after a hundred miles, you've got play in them, and then it's, you know, it's harder to steer when you you're trying to anticipate slop in your the front end of your bike. For sure, you know, it was crazy. My father actually got nominated into the Mountain Bike Hall of Fame a handful of years back. And as you know, Richie comes out and he was on one of those rides and I've learned he'd held that patent all those years and just like released it in 16 or 17 because he thought it was so great. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was great for the time, but oh God, I, I, I just remember a bunch of headaches from everything like shock absorber was elastomer back then. Right. And, I remember um, Steve Bemke. I ran into him at a trade show and I think he was being nice, but almost felt sorry for him. He was like, <laughs> you know, Hey, I know you're sponsored. Just let me send you a Mac 21. Just, you know, like, <laughs> you're going to ride this. And, and, you know, so I did, I'm like, Oh my God, this is a different world. Like I didn't know, you know right? You know, what you don't know. Like, uh-huh. uh, and then, so then, yeah, we, you know, once I wrote a suspension for it, I'm like, Oh, okay. Yeah. I can steer now. This is great. I don't crash as much. Go over the flying over the handlebars. <laughs> right, the bike stays in pretty good shape. Mm. Now and, and so fuel was also at the the same kind of stages at the time. Um, all I remember at that same time frame, Goo I think was one year in development and Power Bar was still using the formula that had water and would freeze if it got cold. And, you know, so you've been doing these endurance events for some time at this point. What were you doing for fuel at that time? Or what, what was your nutrition looking like in the mid nineties for that race? I got introduced to goo in the Australia uh, event, Elaine Mariel, who's a, Race Across America uh, winner, she was testing a not-on-the-market yet, you know, product goo. And so I used it there, and then after I came back, started working with Bill Vaughn, the uh, inventor of that, and, you know, dialing in uh, that recipe and performance. Um, So I would get, you know, my custom batches of goo. So I fueled on, you know, almost entirely goo which was so much more efficient than you know, trying to, to eat a, a power bar, you know, say while you're, you know, bouncing down a trail uh-huh. one handed, like that's the other, the hardest part of one of the hardest parts of mountain biking is eating while you're, you know, riding a, on a rough trail. Like those two things don't go together. Sure. Yeah. It's almost impossible. And speaking of rough trails now, from 1993 to 1996, you took on an even worse challenge and 
maybe one of your worst up and to the point, the 170. I did a sports in Alaska. What equipment, both bike-wise and and then what fuel were you doing to get through those things? And what was that? What was that experience like? Yeah, that's another good example of, you know, you 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 don't know what you're missing when you don't have it. Like the original fat bikes were just a standard bike, you know, with a 2.3 to 2.4, you know, tire. And then were you uh, even uh, were you even welding rims at that point or no? So there was a guy in uh, Fairbanks, Simon Rackauer, who was doing that. You know, two twenty-two millimeter um, Bontrager rims, and then he cut out you know the overlap in the middle and and weld them. So you put one tire on a forty-four millimeter wide rim, mm-hmm. and that worked great. You know, we, that was a huge difference you could you could really you know be able to ride but it's just nothing compared to uh an entry-level fat bike of today i mean that's <laughs> totally changed the sport and you know it's but it's made it a lot more fun it's a lot more approachable for you know the average person um so it's it's uh, better in in every way uh, the food requirements you know up there are different in that you need things that don't freeze. Right. The, the bars are completely out of the question. So things like nuts, you know, work well. I would do this Middle Eastern confection called halva. And what's which is a, tahini and glucose and kind of tastes like Butterfinger. Okay. Huh. That sounds interesting and great. Were you doing any hot foods? Like, were you packing stoves at the time or? No, I didn't stop to uh, <clears throat> do anything like that. It had to be, you know, warm it in my jersey pocket. Or not, you know, warm, but keep it unfrozen. Right, okay. Yeah, and then just kind of like hand food you could get to on the fly, more or less, more like the style of racing you were doing on the road or in Leadville even? Exactly. Okay. Yeah, just, and just hand foods, Gorp. Um I knew a guy, I never tried this, but it was kind of an interesting idea. He had sticks of butter and a bag of sugar, and he would dip the <laughs> stick of butter in the sugar. I've always I, wanted to try that. Like, you know. Yeah, it sounds like it worked, but I'm with you. I don't know that I'm going to break down any doors to try it. <laughs> <laughs> you might get tired of it after 15 hours. Or, or like 15 miles. Yeah. yeah, that might be a big bite of butter. But you do, I mean, that's kind of the cool thing about some of these events is you have to, you know, uh, look at things differently. And when you're in an environment where you can't eat frozen food, you have to look at other uh, other options besides what's best for you metabolically. Um, you know, the, the, it, it could be the best, most healthy food on the planet, but if you can't physically eat it, it doesn't do you any good. Like you have to get, at the end of the day, what matters is calories. You can't you can't pedal without calories. Well, absolutely. And I, I think that's why your information compared to, you know, all that you've done is so vital for like our newer racers that don't have these experiences. Because, yeah, like, you know, I know 
that from the old days, grease would settle that stomach, right? So you may be dying on your goo and dying on your hammer nutrition, whatever you got. And you try something like that and it just flips the tables on everything. And, and I think that's the knowledge that you guys from these, you know, founding moments of these races have a handle on that new people need to know <laughs> for sure. And yeah, that's the other, you know, fun thing about, you know, being from that time is, I mean, it was harder. There was no, um, there was no Google to, to <laughs> research this. Um, you know, you had to learn by doing and, you know, everybody was just kind of, uh, figuring things out. So that was fun, you know, to be a part of. Well, yeah. And I, I mean, the thing I really remember about you, you and Ricky McDonald in particular, were always coming into the shop with the maps and really wanting to know the course. And yeah, just as you said, there's the technology's not there. They were all handheld, tangible maps. And, you know, you're finding your way or talking through things. Yeah, that's the, I think the biggest change in, you know, the sport since I got back into it, you know, uh, just a year and a half or two years ago, following up breadcrumb on GPS is <laughs> one, it's obviously, it's just light years, miles per hour, you know, faster and easier. But the little things of, you know, how, when does this hill end? You know, when is, where, where's the top, you know? And in the past you would either, if there was any humans, you could ask them, but there aren't many. So then you have to look at the map and you have, okay, where am I? All right. How much further do I have to go? All that. Well, now you can just see it. It's like on a screen right there. It's like, right. I've got another 500 feet and then I'm over the top. <laughs> like that's, that's a pretty huge deal for, you know, men managing mental energy in an event. Um, Yes, it is for sure. <laughs> for sure. Now let's uh, talk about another thing you managed at one point in your career. Um, and it, it takes me back to being in that office. I talked about you coming in with the maps and talking to Dad and Mary Lee. Well, one other thing I remember after that first race is you coming in the office um, and you told us you were going to enter this 24 hour race in Moab. Uh, but you, at the time it wasn't a solo event and you entered it anyway. Do you want to tell us how you entered it, what you did and what transpired that day? Yeah. So I, um, Laird Knight was putting on events. Uh, the name kind of changed over the years and location, 24 hours at Canane and then 24 hours of snowshoe. And, um, he added the 24 hours of Moab, uh, after a few years in, but so I did not the first, I think 92 was the first year and I didn't hear about it until afterwards. So I did it as a team in 93 with Bridgestone and then 94, 95, uh, with my friend, Will Gagan and F Floyd Landis was on our team. Uh, yeah, yeah. One of those years. Um, and then uh, for what, 1996, and oh, this whole time I've been, you know, bugging Laird. I'm like, hey, Laird, let me, let me do this solo. I can do it. I think it'd be fun. And I kind of sold him on that whole, like, this is a cool sport. You know, people will love this if, you know, they can just get out there. And he 
he kind of saw it as a masochistic. I don't know if you ever saw the Iron Man where Julie Moss, you know, is messed up and she's crawling across the finish line. Absolutely. You know, yeah, just it, it was uh, a bad look. And he thought that's what long distance sport was like everybody finished like that just by the nature of it. And I had to explain to him, no, 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 that's when something goes wrong. You know, that's when you're either dehydrated or you bonk and, you know, your, your body gives out like in a, uh, you know, normally you should finish like Mark Allen who would finish Ironman looking like he wasn't even breaking a sweat, even though like, obviously he's going as hard as anyone. And so it took me a couple of years of working on him, you know, to convince him it wasn't some, you know, uh, crazy event that was going to, you know, leave me half, half dead by the finish. Right. And then, so he still wouldn't do it. And so finally in 96, I said, you know, I'm just going to, I'm going to enter, I'm going to pay four entry fees. And I don't think he's going to say no, you know, like he'll take his money. I compete in the pro class and he was cool with it and he saw it. And then, you know, the next year he started having a, a solo class and it became kind of a cool thing. So. Well, yeah, I mean, it's it's very cool. You single-handedly change that entire format. So that's got to be a, a fun feather in your cap. And, I mean, it definitely opened the world to a lot of a great endurance racing for sure. And then to, to kind of further that, in 97 to 2000, you made your return to Alaska, but now you're taking on I did a Sport 350. What was that like? Because aren't you still kind of on the same equipment? And could you do the 350 before? Or was this the first time it was an option? It was the, the first time. Um, and that was a completely different animal. Uh, we would, we're going up and over the Alaska range. So it was much more of a true wilderness event. Um, and, the you know, the times that I was doing it by the nature of being out in front, usually I just, I wouldn't see another human being. I saw way more wolves and moose than, you know, humans. There just isn't, there isn't much out there, which of course is the, why it's so awesome. Like I, <laughs> yeah, that's how you feel like, you know, uh, a pioneer, you know, in the old West. For sure. Alaska I mean, still yeah. has that you know, feel to it. So I was really uh, captivated, you know, by that whole uh, atmosphere. I mean, sure, it's a race and, you know, you're trying to do that, but it, that's a survival against Mother Nature, too. That's half the half the battle. Well, yeah, I mean, do you have, like, crazy animal stories from Alaska? Or did you ever feel really threatened? Uh, that is a true Wild West experience. Yeah, I was charged by a moose that, um, like, was, I mean, kicking at me, and, like, she was trying to stomp me. Um, and then, like, I look up, and I see this moose charging at me, so I'm like, oh, that's bad. <laughs> so right. I just kind of picked up my bike. I was going up a big hill, so I just, I spun around and ran, you know, the opposite direction. And then I, I couldn't hear her, so I stopped, and... You know, I turned around and looked, and, you know, she was kind of hanging there with a, you know, a calf. So that was obviously the issue, and, like, that's a bad situation. Yeah. 
the problem is up there, you can't just go around. Like there's one trail and then <laughs> off of the trail is six feet of, you know, snow. Right. And the moose like the trails because, you know, same reason we do. It's packed. It's packed down. And so I had to play this kind of cat and mouse game of I can either turn around and go back to the last checkpoint. I can only sit here waiting for a few minutes because I'm going to be freezing because, you know, I'm all sweaty from going uphill. So I'm like, all right, if she takes one step off the trail, I'm just going to go for it and try and get past her. And like, you know, kind of like, you know, being chased by a dog, as long as you get past whatever their mental property line is, you're fine. You just can't get between um, them and, you know, say the, you know, the, the, their baby. Right. Um, so I was able to do that. You know, it's quite the adrenaline rush. <laughs> uh, and then I, I've seen tons of wolves. Like you, I'd be going all day and the trail was nothing but wolf tracks. And I remember this one time. So it's just, you know, like a th- four foot wide, you know, track and then just all wolf tracks. And then I saw this one set of wolf tracks that was so much bigger than all the rest. It just dwarfed them. And I stopped and I'm like, oh my goodness. Like, <laughs> I shocked, I was shocked that one could be that much bigger than all the rest. And that, you know, kind of gave me the, the willies. But, uh, you know, I never had a, never felt negative energy. Okay. From them. You know, they just, they, they kind of check you out. They stare at you. They look at you like you're insignificant. Like we look at squirrels. They okay. just go. Um, so it's kind of a powerful experience in in that they're just so badass that we're not even worthy of their uh, interest. I mean, that's that's intimidating to say the least. But it is, even though, like after having done it a few times, like you know that the wolves are not a problem. Like they're, you know, there's no fear. You're not going to get hassled. But still, when it's three o'clock in the morning and you're pushing and then you look off, you know, shine your light off into the, you know, woods and you have those eyes reflecting back at you because they're watching you and following you, it Uh really creeps you out. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I can't imagine. I mean, that's (laughs) that's a tough one to get over. Well, so, okay. now in 1999, you pioneered yet. Another great challenge, and this was the unsupported divide race, and we both know that there's a lot of popularity with that today. How did that feel knowing that you were that pioneer, and did that get much recognition at the time? Well, it was interesting because, again, even at this time, um, like with fastest known times, we were just, I, I had conversations with like Mike Kuriak and Buzz Burrell just talking about these, you know, maybe having a loose set of rules for, you know, uh-huh. like what are the rules for, you know, for having a record and how should we do things? And still one of the standards was the race across America. Um, and when I looked at the divide originally, like I was sponsored by Chevy trucks at the time and I thought, okay, I'm going to do, um, a fully supported ride. You have my crew follow me in my, <clears throat> my Chevy <clears throat> um, Blazer, and they'd make a little movie about it, and um, you know it'd be good, you know, promotion uh, and a cool, 
you know, event <clears throat> for me to do because there wasn't, I, I couldn't find anything that had been done that long, like in the two week range. Okay. Uh, non nonstop. Like there was no, like I didn't know how much I could uh, get away with sleeping because there wasn't anybody else to look at. It's like, oh, so and so did X number of hours a night for, you know, fifteen or twenty days or whatever. There, there, there really wasn't that. Um, but then just a week before, um, or maybe ten days before I did, I was like, you know what? I think. The better way to, because doing it for the first time always sets a standard. Mm -hmm. I'm like, I, this should really be self-supported. Like that's the better. And we don't, you know, sport of mountain biking is not having a follow vehicle, you know, with you for, you know, 2,500 miles. <laughs> right. And I just thought, no, the way to do this is to do it self-supported. So I, I didn't have much preparation for that. Um, but it, so I just kind of, you know, I winged it. Um, but it was <clears throat> definitely the, the right thing to do. Like, I'm so thankful that I made that decision. Oh, yeah. Because self-supported is like, well, as we can see with bikepacking, you know, today, um, it's just so much more enjoyable. Like being out there by yourself that, you know, the, the solitude is part of the deal. It's part of the adventure and the challenge. And so I really like that aspect of it. Yeah, I think it's just, it's definitely a different challenge than that of like the 100 mile distance. And it uh, deserves some respects that, you know, keep it to that and keep it a little more pure, I think, for sure. And again, like going to, you know, the changes in technology, the, the hardest part about that whole ride was uh, managing the route with the maps because it was a first generation maps. So they weren't very good. Right. But they weren't, you know, accurate. Right. Um, and then just navigating from paper maps compared to following <clears throat> a breadcrumb is just a night and day difference. Yes. Yeah. It's, <laughs> I spent a lot of time standing by the side of the road figuring out, okay, the map says there's one dirt road, you know, that I have to take to the right in, you know, two tenths of a mile, but you get there and there's a couple of dirt roads and none of them have any markings on them. It's right. Like, All right. Which, which one do I think it is? All right. I'll roll the dice and take this one. And then sometimes you come back. <laughs> exactly. Well then, so now you then in two thousand five, your FTK shifted from the Divide Trail to the three hundred and twenty kilometer John Muir Trail, but this time you did it on foot, and you went on to also do this on the White Rim in Moab, which you just posted about on social media. Um, what got you to take to your feet and brought brought on this change and? Um, do you miss doing that? Do you aspire to do any more of that? So I loved running and I did it. So I, um, quit bike racing in 2000 and, you know, did the family and the, uh, and the job routine. And I just started running for recreation and I had a dog that needed to run. So it was, um, uh, uh, just really good, um, activity for me 
And it was nice not to do cycling because once you've done mm-hmm. something at a high level, it's not quite as much fun to do it at a lower level. For sure. Um, so I needed something, I needed different challenges. So with running, everything I did was a, P, a new PR. So that was really motivating. Like every, you know, do a run, oh, that's the farthest I've ever run, or that's the fastest. So that was a really good feedback loop. Um, and I did, the first long run I did was the Wonderland Trail here in Washington. Okay. So 95 miles circumnavigating Mount Rainier. Okay. And it also opens up uh, new access, you know, trails for me that I couldn't bike on. Right. And I loved that aspect of it. So I did that, and then I did the Ultra uh, Trail de Mont Blanc over in France. Okay, uh, yeah. Which is a real, arguably the hardest 100-mile um, race. Did that, and, you know, that was kind of another level two because, you know, 3,000 people do it. Yeah, what so year did you do that? Um, did it twice, maybe oh three and oh nine. I just see, like I totally didn't even realize that. Yeah, how amazing! What an experience! Yeah, um, that was it's just epic, gorgeous, and um, you know, a really good experience. Um, so yeah, I like running, I would like to try it again. I I got hit by a car pretty badly a few years ago and uh, broke my <clears throat> left leg. Um, I did a tip fib in like three or four places. So I wasn't able to do any, I couldn't even ride my bike for about three years. And then uh, two years ago, I started riding again. You know, leg feels pretty good riding. I haven't tested it running. I'm not, I'm not sure if I can run or not. Okay. It feels pretty good. Like, I'll bet I, I would guess that I can. Um, I don't know if I can do 100-mile runs on it, but um, I would think I can. <clears throat> I'll definitely give it a try here sometime soon. Right, right. <sighs> but, yeah, that did take you down. And then what I was so glad about, so I'm working for Leadville and Lifetime, and, and we acquired Unbound, and – Last year, I'm out working the XL, and and I run into you, and here you are entered in the XL. What 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 was that return to endurance like, and um, what did you think of that course? And do you have any new goals for this year? It was <clears throat> super fun. Really, uh, like the whole atmosphere. The course was great. The people were awesome. Um, definitely going to go back uh, and do it this year. Um, <clears throat> I had problems in the heat for whatever reason, taking 20 years off, <laughs> like I feel actually, you know, pretty good. I'm not as fast as I used to be, but I, if I didn't have a power meter, you know, I'd say I feel pretty normal. Um, except with long distances in the heat, like something metabolically is, uh, deficient and I ha- still haven't figured that out, but like, I do think it's a, you know, a, a something that I can put a finger on and. Um, you know, it just should be able to, you know, whether it's, I don't think it's sodium cause I had that check, but it's probably another mineral. Okay. Uh, and I just need to, you know, uh, figure what, uh, that is. And then, um, like I, my endurance feels perfectly fine. Um, you know, I've done a couple of, like I did another ride on the Olympic peninsula. I did 57 hours straight 
you know, on gravel roads and felt reasonably good. So that's, that's, those are the things that are, you know, fun for me. And it's fun to get back into it. Okay. Yeah. Now, how, how do you adapt your training today as, you know, it's not as Rocky styles back in the day. What are you doing different today in your training to allow you to do such events? Um, trying to think, I don't know if I do, I mean, it's nice to have, you know, all the years to look, you know, back on and Mm -hmm. kind of take another, you know, swing at it. Um, in some ways I'm a little bit more methodical. Like there's some things that I knew worked, you know, back in the nineties. And then we've just, we've learned it so much. Um, like if I, and had a power meter, I would have trained very differently you okay. know, back then. Um, and I guess I got one, like the last year that I was racing was, they came out and I got one and I, I learned a ton just from that. Uh, and I would do, like for me and my physiology, I do better when I ride hard a few days in a row. Like if I ride hard three days in a row, I do best on my third day. Okay. Whereas before power meters, I wouldn't have known that. Okay. You know, like my, my heart rate would have been lower the third day, but my heart rate is, you know, exercising heart rate is lower and yet my watts are higher. Um, okay. And then, like back then we kind of, you know, did a lot of the traditional, you know, hard day, easy day, you know, try and max it out on your hard days. But, um, so I, I train more consecutively. Okay. But, you know, a different person could be could have a totally different plan of what's best for them. Um, you have to figure out, um, you know, what is best for each person, and the way to do that is, I think, is with a, a power meter. They just don't, for better and worse, power meters don't lie. They tell you who you are, and they also tell you who you are not. Do you think uh, they're still beneficial in the light for a mountain bike training with a mountain bike? Oh, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, for every every type of riding, I think they're indispensable. Okay. Well, that's definitely good knowledge. I hope everybody's taking notes. Um, yeah, I'm getting a little too lazy to to be as competitive, but there's a lot of people listening that are looking for that magic ticket. So now. Being such an influence in the sport of cycling and going through the monumental amount of achievements you've had and early success being at the right place in cycling, what influences are you most proud of and where are you most proud to have left your mark? Um, I would say I really tried – because. The the one barrier that I found early on was people thought what I was doing was you know masochistic. Like who would who would have fun riding for twenty four hours or for a hundred miles? And I worked hard to change that. Like um, I thought it would be, or or people thought that I was you know just some you know, kind of mutants and that, okay, sure. It's fine for you or a few other folks to do it, but the average person, you know, 
can't or wouldn't want to. And I just never felt that that was true. I felt that it was approachable for everyone and that it was, you know, uh, would be fun, especially, you know, like Leadville, you know, back to the, you know, the marathon analogy, like it's an accomplishment just to finish. And I think that is a, an awesome achievement for a lot of people. And it's not, you know, just an achievement like, oh, you suffered so much. It's like, no, the goal is to go out there and have fun, you know, truly have fun and enjoy it. Absolutely. And I think that's what the that's what the sport is is about at the end of the day. Going out and having fun on your bike. Well, yes. I mean that's my dad was always trying to teach that to me. It's about getting out in those mountains foot or wheel and and continuing on and, and that that would give you the keys to life. That would make everything go longer. Um and speaking of those early days of Ken and Mary Lee, do you have any memories you'd like to share um, that you had with them in those early days coming in and out of that office discussing this stuff? They were always so darn nice to me. And I remember um, one of the times I came back, they gave me a uh, a belt buckle with my you know name on it. And you know, it wasn't for you know winning or it was just for, you know, kind of participating and that really meant a lot to me um you know <clears throat> they didn't really gain anything from that that was just them being you know <clears throat> generous and nice to me and it sits on my you know fireplace you know mantle it's one of my you know prouder um tokens for my racing career well i actually love that i'm um, you can be sure i'm gonna share that with them as soon as we get done with this call um, now, so for those new people coming to, you know, our race, uh, they're, they've heard your stories, they're intrigued, they want to come. What advice do you have for those people to hit that red carpet come August? Eat way more calories than you, you think that you need. I, I think the, uh, the big mistake that a lot of folks make is to not eat enough and that, you know, they start getting tired, you know, later in the, in the race and think that that's, you know, normal. Like, of course you're tired, of course you're slowing down, but if you eat the calories properly, you could maintain a very high output the entire way. Um, again, that's going to be slightly different for each person. So, you know, it's better to figure that out yourself, but it's mm -hmm. always more than, I mean, it's almost double of what the average person, you know, thinks it should be. More than you think and don't get in a deficit. Yeah, once you're in a deficit, you just, you can't get out of that. Um, with fluid and, you know, uh, food calories, you just don't, you fright from, and that's, the, you know, the race is so hectic and everybody's full of adrenaline and juice that most people don't eat or drink for that first hour. And I think it's far a far better plan to go out slow, stay within yourself, and just be methodical about, you know, whatever it is, every 20 minutes or maybe every 30 minutes, you know, you do a, a pack of goo or, you know, your, your gel of choice and just stay, you know, within yourself and, you know, trying to, you know, slightly even splits is um, 
I, I think a more efficient uh, way. And, you, you know, it'll be a much better experience as opposed to going out hard and blowing up. Uh, yeah, I think that nutrition advice is the best advice anybody could get. Um, and then all, one other thing on, like I would run into a lot of people who would, would pull up stomach problems uh-huh. and they would usually blame either their drink or their food or something. In my experience, I think most stomach problems relate to getting either slightly dehydrated or uh, low in sodium. Okay, and that's even if you're on a whole bunch of gels. Yeah, and the, the, the yeah the other thing is you know you need more sodium than most folks um, consume way more than is in an average um, electrolyte drink. Absolutely okay. And then what have you what do you think of when you hear the word Leadville? I think of the, the, uh, the just the beautiful, charming town. Like I just love uh, the the town of Leadville so perfectly fits the race. Um, it was just a warm and in, inviting place. Well, thank you very much. Um, thank you so much for all your time today. It I've have had as much fun catching up with you today as a starstruck boy that was watching you take that line in 1994. Is there anything else you'd like to share before I let you go? Oh, I'd love to come back someday. Um, maybe when I turn 60, I'll try and do, if I can run, do the run. And the I, got, I always wanted to do both the run and the bike in the same year. Well, you of all people have always gotten an open invite, and I would love to help make that happen. So maybe, yeah, maybe when I turn 60, that would be a good way to spend that, you know, celebrate that year. Well, I love it. We should try to make that happen. And really appreciate you uh, including me, Cole. It's very generous of you to uh, have me on your podcast. I appreciate that. Well, absolutely. Like I said, I can't thank you enough. You've been a big fixture amongst us and many others all these years, and it's just so much fun to see you still taking part going forward and paving the way. I'll probably see you out there someplace. (laughs) Okay, we'll see you soon, John. Take care. Happy trails. Well, there you go, Leadville family. If you're not inspired now, you might check that pulse because John sure shared a lot of achievements and uh, cutting-edge endurance while doing so. I hope that that was as much fun for you as it was for me. And uh, don't forget to give us a like and a follow wherever you're getting your podcasts. And we can't wait to see you at home. We can't wait to see you in Leadville.